So this evening, I want to talk about the relationship between our retreat practice and deepening daily life practice as a way of making a kind of a bridge or um, integration between what we've been doing here and what we'll find perhaps all too soon (laughs) tomorrow. It's um, probably not the choice of the people who founded Spirit Rock, but once you leave Spirit Rock, you go instantly into 55 mile an hour traffic. Be nice to have that more gradual. Of course, you can go on the 55 mile an hour traffic and then go off to a side road, but it gets quick out there, right? It'll be quick out there. And we've been exploring many tools, many techniques, many practices. People have had important insights. Insights into the way the mind works, and personal insights into what I need to do in my life. Insights into some of the, the wonder of the mind, of experience, some of the mystery of this being alive, which we um, all too often take for granted. And the question is how to keep those insights uh, going, how to ground them or stabilize them, how to keep the learning going in the midst of daily life. One of my recent inspirations has been reading and hearing about the life of an Indian woman named Deepama, who I once met about uh, over over 20 years ago. There's a beautiful book about her that you can get in the bookstore called Knee Deep in Grace, and this is a picture of Deepama. She was a woman who lived in Calcutta, She started meditation practice when she was 53 years old. She had no choice but to make her daily life right at the center of her practice because she had children. She also had a lot of suffering. Before in the, the, I think in about the 10 or 15 years before she started practicing, her husband suddenly died One of her children died, I believe, very young. She wasn't, uh, she didn't have many material possessions. And she went off to study meditation and she, she combined both intensive practice with a, I don't know, what can only be called a kind of fierce determination in daily life practice. And she lived in Calcutta. And she lived up uh, five flights, I believe, in an apartment building in Calcutta. Didn't have any elevator. And she would particularly instruct the women of the community in meditation. 
she influenced a great number of the people who teach here because of her luminosity of spirit. And I just wanted to read something from this book, which uh, if you have some time, you might want to look at it in the bookstore because it's really about a very extraordinary person for whom daily life was the essence. And this is what Jack Kornfield said about her. This book is is a sort of a compilation of people's remembrances and stories. It's a beautiful book. She encouraged me, says says Jack Kornfield, to live what I was teaching. The quality of her presence was like that in the Hasidic tales, the Hasidic Jewish tales, where somebody asked, why did you go to see this rabbi? Did you go to hear him give a great lecture on the Torah or see how he worked with his students? And the person said, no, I went to see how he tied his shoes. Deepama didn't want people to come and live in India forever or be monks or join an ashram. She said, live your life, do the dishes, do the laundry, take your kids to kindergarten, raise your children or your grandchildren, take care of the community in which you live, make all of that your path and follow your path with heart. And she was once asked, how do you uh, understand the connection between your retreat practice and your daily life practice? And she said, in the retreats, I had very, very deep insights at times. I had important insights. In daily life, I worked and I stabilized them and I found out what they meant. And both, she says, were necessary. And yet to do daily life practice in this culture is hard. I think we know that. I think I don't need to elaborate on that very much, right? We know that the uh, culture is very speedy. It's very uh, mental, we might say, and getting more so with the, you know, with the email and the internet. Uh, it, it kind of encourages a disembodied virtual existence. And we have to be careful about that. I mean, I think, I think there are ways of working with those media, but there are ways in which there's not particularly an encouragement of mindfulness. Rather, as I mentioned once before, there's almost an encouragement of being distracted, of not really paying attention. A lot of the wisdom dimensions of Western culture are somewhat submerged. There have been people in Western culture, the the sages, the great mystics, who have had insights and done practices and conducted themselves very much like we have for this period of time. And yet that aspect of our culture has been somewhat lost or submerged the contemplative dimension in Christianity and Judaism has been somewhat uh, lost. And in fact, it's been Jews and Christians working with uh, this kind of practice that has played a major role in helping Westerners to discover their own traditions, their own deeper traditions. 
in many ways also, we don't have the level of support that we might want. When I was asking about uh, how many of you would like to sign up for to live in a community where you meditate together with people in the morning, kind of have your own space. So it's not a, like a commune with all the problems of communes. I, I lived in communes most of my 20s, and it had its ups and downs. <laughs> and, uh, but how, how many of us would like to live in a place where there was, where we could do something like we do here, okay? We all come together in the morning, we practice together, maybe we ha- even have breakfast in silence together, and then we go off into the world to do our work. We do our work, we come home, maybe we can talk about how it went, how was that to, you know, how did you bring mindfulness to that interaction with your boss, you know? And we can talk about that together. I mean, I, I long for something like that, you know, and have it to, to some extent, but not like I would want it. And we don't have that kind of support. Even living in a place where we can come to Spirit Rock, there are meditation groups and so forth, which is a lot more than there was 20 years ago, 50 years ago. There's a lot there, you know, and being in, in California or um, even most places near urban centers, you know, like Vermont or... Maryland or Los Angeles or the San Francisco area, there's a lot there. But even still, sometimes it can feel like there's not that much support. We wake up, we go to work. You know, there may not feel like there's that much community around us. And because of that, we may forget our intentions. We may forget to practice. We may forget what we really hold dear. And those are the conditions that we live in. And it's not easy, you know. Uh, And yet I believe, as I said the other night, I believe that for many of us, I certainly feel this myself, that we are called to find a way to make this work in the midst of our culture. We may not want to embrace everything about the culture, but I find few of my friends who get really, really into meditation decide to be monks or nuns. Certainly not for their lives. Some do, very few do. Most of us are trying to make this work in ordinary daily life. And so it's, I think, incumbent on us to really give that attention, as, as, I, as I've said. So how do we do that? So what I'd like to do is mention a few things which are um, quite important and that are the kind of like the basic things, the basic uh, ways, some of the basic ways to bring our retreat experience into daily life. And I want to mention just a few of those briefly. And then I want to talk a little more personally about five ways that have really helped me to bring, I'm going to almost pose them as, um, almost like in a poetic way. Like I'm going to talk about a few different um, qualities to cultivate that really helped uh, daily life practice. So I'm going to talk about... uh, for example, I'm, and I'm going to use poetic images. I'm going to say we need to, first of all, do what I, 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 I would call following a poem. We need to break the mirror, which means we have to find ways to uh, get out of our habits. That's the first. The second is we need to find ways to really strengthen community, to take refuge in the community or the sangha. Uh, thirdly, we need, to, um, we need to find 
we really need to find the leading edge of our own practice, where were our practices most alive, and spend time there. Fourthly, we need to do a lot of experiments, what I would call experiments with meditation in our daily life. And fifthly, we need to do what I would call practice the alchemist's craft, which is to turn difficult situations into learning opportunities. That's what I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to try, I think, to have, um, for a lot of these, I found some poems. That's what all these books are about. I found some poems and stories that can illustrate them. But before going into those that are a little more personal, I wanted to just talk about sort of what are the basics for making daily life practice work. And one of them is having a, a daily sitting practice, to do that every day, if that, if that feels appropriate. Uh, but for, for myself, it's been crucial. You know, and I think I've more or less, I've done a daily practice for over 25 years. And I think rarely missed a day. And it's really important to do that um, every day. If you can't do it for the amount of time we do it here, do it for five minutes. Do it for 10 minutes. Do walking meditation on your way to work. Make your, have your walking be meditation, be mindfulness. So find ways to do daily practice to remind yourself that this is important for you. And it's really, really important. Secondly, work with the ethical precepts that we started the retreat with. If you follow them, they will save you a lot of suffering and other people as well. They're actually also wonderful guides, and they're guides for mindfulness as well. But the ethical precepts are really, uh, notice I'm saying really a lot. They're really, really important. <laughs> uh, and they, they, as I said the first evening, the ethical precepts are a kind of protection. They give us safety. They give us safety and they give other people safety. And in a way, as we, just as we uh, understood our retreat here as being based on the container of safety, we need safety to be op- open and vulnerable. We need that safety in the ethical precepts of not harming, of not taking that which is not given, given of being very careful with the energies of sexuality and speech and intoxicants. Those are the core ethical precepts. And to really follow those can help provide us a space and remind us of our intentions in a very powerful way. A third sort of basic quality, before I go on to the more personal ones, is to do study and reading. Talk with other people about teachings. It can be very inspiring. You know, listen to tapes. You know, there are a lot of tapes in the box there, and you can get a catalog of Dharma Seed Library. Tapes are wonderful, her CDs. They, they offer either CDs or tapes. You know, listen to them if you want while you're driving places. You know, just, it's just a, how do you come back to this basic intention that's been nourished in these days? How do we do that? That's the question. And the study can really help with the understanding of of what we're doing. 
if you can, work with a teacher or mentor. It's really, it's been, for me, it's been really, really crucial. Really, 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 really crucial. To to do that, and I've been blessed with some beautiful teachers that uh, it quickens one's work. As you could tell, did the interviews, did the one-on-one work sort of quicken your practice somewhat here? Did you find that? I mean, it, it's, you know, there are a lot, of fa- a lot of things happening there, but it helps you focus, it gives energy, it can be very uh, personal and supportive, and I, it's just a very a crucial uh, dimension of practice and it's actually not so common among practitioners to have a personal relationship with a mentor. So seek it out. You know, ask people to be mentors. I think that's something that's going to expand very much in the next years. And I've been connected some with the development of a, a Dharma Center for the uh, East Bay of uh, the Bay Area, for the Berkeley Oakland area. And one of my inspirations there has been to help create a network of people who could be mentors. Because I think we need that kind of personal attention, even if it's uh, once a month. Once a month is a lot. Just to come in and say how things are going, it really keeps so much going. I know from my own experience, working with mentors, that, uh, for example, particularly in the last years, John Travis and Sylvia Borstein. With John, I would be either in person or on the phone for about an hour every two weeks. And I can't tell you how much that supported my my work and my practice. Some of it was about my own practice. Some of it was mentoring, taking a larger role as a teacher. And it's really really something that's that's beautiful. And uh, when it works, you have to find the right connection. So now on to these personal, more personal uh, ways of deepening practice. The first one I characterized as Break the Mirror. And that comes from a poem by a Japanese poet named Nanao Sakaki. It's a very short poem, so I'll read it, maybe more than once. Here's what he says. To stay young, to save the world, break the mirror. That's it. <laughs> Do you get it? To stay, to, to stay young, to save the world, break the mirror. It points to the mirror that, as I interpreted in the poem, is the sort of automatic sense of life that we have. The kind of frozen, rigid sense of self and sense of how I'm living could say that it's the, uh, you know, it's the way maybe that we look in the mirror and we just go into, is that you? Yeah, it's me. And we just kind of, we're kind of in trance. And so another way you could say it is that we need to find ways to break out of our trance or break out of our um, automatic state. Daily sitting will do that. Going on retreats will do that. Good mentors can sometimes shake you up. Good friends can shake you up too. Find good friends who are honest to you. I was kind of funny, just about two or three days ago, uh, some of you know Wes Nisker, who is helping with the other retreat, and he has 
a room right across from mine. And I was talking with him and I, I, sh I, I showed him some of my, um, I gave him the manuscript of the book I'm working on just to look at for a few days. And he asked me, do you want truth or praise? <laughs> and I thought about it a while. Because <laughs> praise isn't that bad. Uh, and I said, truth. He said, good choice. <laughs> and, and friends who can tell us the truth are good friends. And they have to, you know, they have to remember wise speech and have helpfulness as well, and not just be truthful to, out of some ego trip or something, but um, uh, finding good friends who can help us break the mirror is helpful. Can, so it, what it means is that in practice, it's helpful sometimes to be shaken up a little bit, to move out of our usual way of seeing things. Um, Kafka, with his somewhat uh, dark humor, he said this. He, he said this about the, how a good book can function in this way. He said, a good book is like a pickaxe to break the frozen ice of the mind. <laughs> Non-Buddhist image there, but... A good book is like a pickaxe to break the frozen ice of the mind. So do things which take you out of your habits. Uh, take vacations. As Dharma, you know, take all the vacations you can. Do retreats. Uh, go to strange lands. Find unusual friends. Uh, <laughs> um, think of, think of uh, ways to kind of get out of your personality. Go to clown school. That'll do it. You know, do acting. Do improvisation. Play a musical instrument. Uh, find ways to break the mirror. Go on retreats a lot. Retreats do that, don't they? Do, um, take a day off every week. I do that as a personal practice. I take a Sabbath day, I call it, once a week. No emails, no telephone. Pretty much a full day once a week. I've been doing that for most of the last weeks for over 20 years. Makes a huge difference. It's very traditional. It's been done for a long time, east and west, and there's good reasons for it. You know? And it's, it's something which historically has been done by people who are right in the middle of daily life. They took a day off, right? It's been lost in the last century, hasn't it? It's a very old tradition, very old tradition in this culture. See if that appeals to you. If you can't do a whole day, do three hours every week in which you maybe do some meditation, do some reading, and spend some time in the woods or in the mountains. And do it at the same time every week, and you'll notice a big difference. You'll notice that things are happening. You know, do a half a day, do three hours, but do it regularly, and you'll, that, that you'll find that those are very good ways to break the mirror. The second is to uh, take refuge in the Sangha, or take refuge in the community. That, for me, being with like-minded people shifts something. I, I, maybe you notice it, like... Uh, when you walk into this uh, room, it's almost like, does your consciousness shift a little bit? Sometimes the, you can almost feel like the mind's getting quieter. We have these shared intentions that are strong. 
and that manifest. And I, I know I felt sometimes, whatever my daily life is like, sometimes when I go into uh, a room where, where we're doing some kind of practice, it's like something in me just shifts and says, oh, here I can really follow that deep intention of mind. And something just relaxes and says, oh, here I am. And it's, it's somehow different than the everyday life. It kind of, it's like, um, it's like I'm being told by a group or by a subculture, we share your values, we share your vision. And it's incredibly important to feel that. The hardest thing about practice in the world is that we can feel isolated. And isolation can lead to inactivity or feeling a little bit despairing or just wondering, even doubt, all the the hindrances, you know. Um, and so find a community that you're part of. And it can take a lot of different forms. It can take the form of a weekly group. It can take the form of doing retreats. It can take the form of coming to Spirit Rock a lot. My parents visited me a few days ago. Uh, and ha- we had lunch together. They live in Petaluma, which is about... Uh, maybe about uh, 25 miles from here, north, Oregon, yeah, northeast. And my mother says, I love being here. Something when I'm here, I just get really, really peaceful. Just the land does that and the ambience. Find a place like that which can be like a home. Go there a lot and it will start to inhabit you. It'll start to be part of your consciousness so that it enters your dreams and it enters your way of being. The Buddha once said, that community is very important. And he, he was asked a question by his attendant Ananda who, if you read the Buddhist text, is often kind of like the fall guy. He asks all the dumb questions that no one else would ask. And he, one day, he was uh, um, talking to the Buddha, and he said, you know, Buddha, (laughs) you know, Buddha, I was thinking. And the Buddha says, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, more or less. And then Ananda says, you know, good friends are really important. Good friends and community are really important, and they're at least half of the sake of the life following the sacred, half of the holy life, he said. And the Buddha looked at him and said, not so, Ananda. He said, good friends are the whole of the holy life. Good friends are everything. Good friends on the path are the whole of the holy life, he said. It's a strong statement, isn't it? I think it points to the way that that quality of community and good friends really can nourish us. I know for me in the last few weeks, uh, particularly after finishing long retreat, I've spent a lot of time with really close friends. And we've just spent like three hours, four hours together talking and kind of inspiring each other about our practice, our growth, our learning. And it is so nourishing. It's so nourishing to have those kind of friends and have those kind of conversations. And yet we have to find 
communities where that could happen. You know, perhaps you had something like that uh, walking, you know, walking during the time that was open, if you, if you did that. That we could have conversations with each other, I think, that would be very inspiring. Perhaps some, some will happen um, tomorrow, perhaps some in discussion. So that's the second aspect. The first, break the mirror. Second, take refuge in the Sangha or the community. The third is, find the leading edge of your practice and follow it. See where you're really drawn to grow. See where your spirit wants to learn. You know, it might be to come back and do more retreats. It might be to uh, really work with speech as a practice, if that inspired you. One way to talk about what uh, might be a leading edge is to say that I think each of us kind of lead by looking at our minds, by working with our hearts and emotions, or working with our bodies and attention to our bodies. For me, for example, I think all three have been important at different times. When I was first starting to practice, I loved just working and seeing more clearly the patterns of my mind. That's been really, really important, just to see what if my patterns lead to suffering, what lead to freedom. My first teacher was Joseph Goldstein, who some of you know from his books, who's a teacher on the East Coast, who comes out here sometimes. And he gave me practices, like he, he gave me practice and he said, every time you suffer, look for where the attachment is. I said, oh good. And so I would suffer and say, where's the attachment? And I would kind of look for the attachment <laughs> here and there. But I would I'd be able, to, for me it was a way of saying, what, if, what kind of mental pattern is connected with my suffering? And it, would, it was incredibly exciting to really look carefully like that, to really investigate the nature of my mind. Other people, their leading edge is more with the heart. And it might come through their, your intimate relationships, your close relationships, your friendships. Might be what really feels like the edge of growth. Oh, I'm really opening my heart now. And you can bring all the power of your practice to work with having your close relationships be more the opening of the heart, the opening of the mind. You know? I have a friend who I talk to a lot who says, my practice, I really feel like my heart is my leading edge. You know, what I feel drawn to do, I feel drawn to go out in the world and bring metta to everyone. I feel drawn when I'm with someone else to really say, where's my heart at? Right now, in the moment. I feel really drawn, maybe like uh, some of you know Julia Butterfly Hill, the person who sat in the tree for two years. Who's, who's an environmental activist. Do people know who she is? She says, I want every one of my actions to come out of love. It's a kind of daily life practice because for her, as it were, it's the heart which is the leading edge. And she knows that. And so I think for each of us, we need to find where is that leading edge. For me, a lot of the last years, my leading edge has been to be more embodied. That's why, that's Charlotte, that's why maybe why I I was talking so much about the body, that it's been really, really crucial, and for me, a way really to develop presence in daily life, to be more with my body. And I think that 
that's true, maybe true for a lot of us, that the body can be really crucial. For others, it might be the heart or working with the mind. But for me, to bring awareness uh, to my body and be able to bring that awareness of the body when I was speaking, going to meetings, just walking around, has been a major way that I think mindfulness has been, and uh, awareness has been brought more into my daily life. My, uh, my teacher, John Travis, at one point when he was working with me, he gave me a line which electrified me. Uh, not literally, don't worry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being playful. <laughs> but he, he gave me this line which had this big impact on me. He said, you know, traditional monks and nuns, they have a lot of support. And they have monasteries, they have fellow monks and nuns, they have all the practices, patterns, the bells, just like we're following here. But, you know, for us out in the world, for me, and I think maybe for you, he said, let your body be your monastery. Let your body be your monastery. And something really stuck with that. It was like saying, I don't have a monastery that I'm part of, but can I have my body be a constant reminder to be present? Can I be continually present with feeling my body, with being aware? And for me, that's been a leading edge that's been really, really important to be able to uh, find tools so that I can be mindful with others in speaking, in meetings, walking, in public transportation, and so forth. That it's really a very crucial way that many of us deepen our daily life practice is through work with the body, through awareness of the body. So if that, see where you're drawn, see where your edge is, see where your edge of learning is, see which has the most energy for you, because that's where you have to follow. That's where you have to make it come alive. See where your practice is most juicy. See what most excites you might be study, might be, uh, might be looking into the wonders of the mind, it might be the heart, it might be really saying, I want to really be present in my body. See what it is and follow it. And it's a, it's a way that your practice will come more and more alive. The fourth is, related to that, practice experiments in mindfulness and metta. Have your life be increasingly full of ways to practice in all sorts of situations. So you might try the Sabbath experiment. I'm going to give a handout uh, at the end of the evening that gives 60 ways to practice mindfulness in daily life. You could do one a week for the next 60 weeks and then report back. Uh, Find your own ways. You know, I list list a lot of these and maybe I'll just read them, read some of these to you. Just to give a sense of it. Maintain a daily mindfulness practice. On very busy days, 
sit or walk quietly for just a short time, even for five or ten minutes. Every morning, be present to the natural world for some time. You might take a walk every morning, or sit or stand or walk for the sunrise. Take short, take short breaks for five or ten minutes mindfulness practice during the day, perhaps with someone else. Find ways to take these little breaks. Sit five or ten minutes before a meal. For a particular week, set the intention to be mindful during one of the regular repetitive activities that you do, brushing your teeth, showering, taking a bath, washing the dishes, gardening, shopping, being at the computer, and so forth. Ask periodically during a day or during a specific activity, what's happening? How am I feeling? Write mindfulness instructions on your hands. (laughs) Write them on the wall. One thing I've been doing the last few months since the, or last few weeks since the end of my retreat, I do metta now with every email. I do. It's really interesting practice. Um, I usually start, I do it in two ways. I do, and it's a kind of an experiment, you might say. I do it in two ways. I do it, I have a metta phrase as my first line of the message after dear so-and-so or hi or whatever. And I have a phrase which I, I vary some. So I say, sometimes say, may you be well. Sometimes I, recently I've been saying a lot, may you be smiling. <laughs> may you be smiling. And I got back emails recently where people said, you know, when I got that email, I wasn't smiling at all. But after reading it, I was. You know? In fact, several people have told me that. They like the smiling one. It seems to work quite well. You know? and, and then I also do just a very brief internal metta. I do, you know, may you be happy and contented. I just take five or ten seconds. And I've just felt like that's important to do. Do experiments like that. Take a period of a meeting. Take two hours in a meeting and do your best to cultivate mindfulness during a meeting. I do that a lot. I love doing it at meetings. And I I often bring a little piece of paper in front of me that other people can't quite see. And I sometimes write down what's happening. Like make a log of my mindfulness. Like saying, you know, mind wandering. You know? Sometimes I would say, sarcastic thoughts developing in my mind. Should I say them? (laughs) You know? Uh, And you can experiment with that, but uh, take something in your day just for an hour or for two hours and have practice that's just as focused as you are here. And these are all listed in my 60 ways to develop mindfulness. I have found that these kind of experiments are really helped if they have a boundary around them. Don't just, don't, it's not so helpful usually to say, I'm just going to do this indefinitely. Try an experiment and say, I'm going to do this for these, this hour, this two hours. I'm going to do a Sabbath for this three-hour period. I'm going to do, uh, every time I walk, or every time I walk today, I'm going to try to be mindful. 
that is much more likely to be successful than if you say, I'm going to walk indefinitely all the time and do, mind, mind, do walking meditation. Set a boundary around it. Do one thing at a time. Don't try to do too many things. Do one thing, or at most two things at a time. Don't take on too many things in these experiments. And that, those are some of the ways that I found them succeeding. Find a buddy. Find a mindfulness experiment buddy. Maybe even someone here. If there's someone here that you want to stay in touch with, if you want to have a buddy, buddies are great for mindfulness. My mentor, Sylvia Borstein, does gratitude practice, expressing gratitude. And she has a friend who lives on the East Coast, and they send their gratitude practice, what they do on a given day, back and forth on emails. Find someone that you can share with, that you might like to really uh, find out what to do, and, and give, give each other support. The last thing I want to mention about, or talk about, is what I call practice the alchemist craft. Do you remember what alchemists do? They turn lead into gold. I'm sorry to say this, perhaps, but not really, that if you take your difficult experiences as potential learning experiences, you will turn lead into gold. That there's something that actually is not for everyone at every time, but at a certain point in the maturing of practice, our distressing moments start to become interesting. And we can say, oh, a difficult moment, something to learn. It goes against the normal conditioning, doesn't it? Have you seen how you've been able to do that here? Sometimes a difficulty arises, maybe something you don't like. Have you seen how you've been able to learn and take something difficult as a source of learning? So you have, so you feel a difficult emotion, you feel anger, you feel lonely, you feel fear. Can you say, let me learn from this? Let me see what I can uh, explore here. Jack Hornfield says that the nature of fear is that something that we're about to learn is presenting itself. In the Tibetan teachings, there is a set of very interesting slogans called the Lojong slogans. One of the slogans is, transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Transform all obstacles into the path of practice. When we can do that, even to take uh, small obstacles and say, something to learn from. In other words, not just everything stops being so much a curse or a blessing. And everything rather turns into opportunities for learning. When we can actually do that, we tremendously accelerate our practice in daily life because there are a lot of obstacles. There are interactions with people that don't go so well. There are difficult relationships with bosses, with coworkers. Can we take those as opportunities to learn? If we can do so, and we need support for that, then things accelerate tremendously. I want to finish with a... Uh, poem from Rumi 
that expresses this core, this notion of the alchemist uh, craft, the sense that we can actually take what's difficult and challenging, and that it actually can provide tremendous learning. This is from a poem called The Question, from about the, what, the 13th century. God's presence is there in front of me, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which are not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes out, goes under on the water surface, that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire, I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. And so can we can we do that? Can we say, oh, there's fire. Maybe I can learn something there. And we might look and say, oh, I'm really attached to this water. Is that attachment to the water bringing me suffering? Paradox and reversal. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you were a friend of God, fire is your water. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other to the eyes you have now. What looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. So you may come to that perspective or something like it, where you say, I think this difficulty is workable and I want to see what I can learn from it. And if we do that, and that's my own experience, we have a moment of difficulty, a moment of loneliness, you know, a moment when we wake up in the middle of the night and we feel troubled by something. What I've been increasingly doing in those moments, I've been saying, all right, time for practice. A difficult moment, sit up straight and look at what's there. Bring metta to it, not to get rid of it, but to work with the situation. When we can take those moments of distress and have them be potential learning situations, we stop being scared of a great number of things and we learn 
incredibly, and it can make our daily life be um, quite magical. And yet I think we need those other supports to be able to do that. We need the supports of the daily practice, the following of the ethical precepts, the study, the work with a mentor, you know, and all the other, the other tools, the community. When we have that, then we can take these uh, challenging aspects of our lives as um, curious ways to learn. So, what my hope is that this has inspired you to do your own experiments in mindfulness and that we will um, together compare notes for the next 30 years. Perhaps write a book together. So thank you very much. (laughs) Let's just take a moment to be quiet. So please, any questions or comments or reflections, spontaneous poems? I was thinking about tomorrow. And the end of the world. Mm-hmm. The top, you know, people when they speak. Chances are it's not going to be coming from a place of mindfulness. Yeah. Resistant to, to going there. To going there. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we have, <laughs> is anyone interested in the option of staying another week? <laughs> we can arra- anyone want to sign up? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, how many people feel something like what David's expressing? Okay. Um, there's a lot that could be said about that. that that's important. Um, for one thing, it's good to remember, do you know how you felt when you started to talk this afternoon? You're, we're all pretty sensitive. You know, we're all pretty sensitive and wide open. And it's really good to remember that. 
And I think over the, you know, over the years, you know, for me, I've probably gone back and forth between retreats and non-retreats probably 500 times or something like that, you know, or a lot of times. A, few, a lot. A few hundred, whatever. And it does over time things, uh, there's lots of difference. Um, but it's hard. I can remember some of my first retreats were really, really difficult. Uh, partly, you know, part of me wanted to really talk about what I was experiencing, and I tended to misread the people I was with and assume that they were interested. <laughs> and they weren't, you know. For most people, if they ask, how, you know, how did your retreat go, and you say, pretty good, they're on to the next subject. Remember that. That's important. <laughs> Some people may be really sincerely interested, and then you can have a conversation. But be aware that your desire to really communicate, which, you know, these are important experiences, and we have desires to communicate, it may not be matched by the other person's wish to hear. Family members. <laughs> so that's, that's good to remember. And see if you can, and, and be discreet. That's one thing. Be, you know, um, try to be, try to, try to just know that the majority of people will be quite satisfied with pretty good retreat. Yep. I liked it. <laughs> End of conversation. This may not be what you want, but that's what reality is offering. <laughs> so that's good to be sensitive to that. And then you'll find some people who are interested in, and will really want to know. But be, 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 try to be clear about who they, those are. And another suggestion for tomorrow and the next days, as much as is possible, don't try to do too much in the next few days. If you arrange a busy schedule, it's kind of a nice thing that we finish on Friday. I mean, it, I thought there were some hard things about this, that people have to take off, you know, five work days, some people at least. But uh, the good thing about it is, when, pe- when retreats end on Sunday, guess what? Guess what the next day is? We don't have that, hopefully. I mean, some of you may work on Saturdays, but um, as much as is in your power, really take it easy the next few days, at least through Sunday. If, you, if, you, if it's in your power and it, it's resonating with you to do that, because you're sensitive, there's a lot to integrate, a, lot of, uh, a large number of stimuli will make you a little bit crazy for a little while. You'll come back to yourself after a while. No, no. In the long run, nothing's going to be a problem. But in the short run, it's good to protect yourself. Don't um, take a day before you read all your emails before you look at your mail. If you have that in your power, do that. Go gradually back into your life. Don't do it all, you know, go home, download 300 emails, you know, read all your mail, catch up on all the newspapers of the last week. Those are two guidelines. Be careful with interactions. 
um, your dear friends will really want to know about this. And, the, and you can have like, some of those conversations like I was talking about that can be really beautiful. And, and uh, take it really easy. Try to make space for meditating the next few days. It'll really make a difference. See if you can connect with a community as soon as possible, you know, where you go sit somewhere, within the next week for sure, if you can do that. Um, each, each person here is individual, and some of you have, you know, we each have different needs and different, you know, different, different backgrounds of practice. So what I'm saying is not necessarily recommendation for everyone, but it's a good general one. Yeah. Does anyone else uh, want to suggest anything that you may have found helpful in your own experience? Right after a retreat? Please. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, just. One year I made the mistake of not doing any sitting practice any days, and it was a year that, it was the first year that I went on retreat, and my consciousness was radically altered by the retreat. Yeah. And I didn't practice, and I felt extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, people taught me that to practice. Yeah. Every day afterwards. Yeah. Makes a big difference. And for a long time, you know, not, yeah. not just a short practice, but to do it for an hour if you could. Yeah, or, or just see what works for you. And, the, you know, the, on the positive side, retreats are times to really build on the momentum. You know, a lot of momentum here. Keep your practice growing, and it'll get, it'll really, it has a chance of getting really stabilized because you've been doing it, and it's second nature now, right? You just come in in the morning, you sit for 45 minutes. It has its ups and downs, but you sit, right? Do it at home. Use an alarm clock or something so you don't have to decide when you're going to stop. Little, little trick there. <laughs> you know, commit to the watch. <laughs> Please. Are, are there meditation timers that have? Real bells instead of electronic beeps. Well, uh, there. Do you have one? Uh, I made one. I, I made a CD. Mm-hmm. I, you can. I downloaded singing bowls from the web. Wow. Burned the CD with. Cool. Yeah, by by Sita's CD, um, start your practice with chants. You know, start you know get some tapes. You know, let's start your practice with if if some of these tapes or other people's tapes appeal to you, it'll bring you right back here, won't it? It'll bring bring because this our experiences here will be are always accessible. Find ways to do that. Or I when I first started practicing, I used to my brother and I practiced together for um, when we were first practicing. And we used to sit, and we, we used uh, incense. Japanese incense comes uh, uh, in sticks that are of lengths, which are linked to uh, amount of time it takes to burn them. And so there are 30-minute incense sticks, and there are 60-minute incense sticks. And you can buy them. We used to just buy them. And when the incense was done, we were done. <laughs> <laughs> So to speak. Is your brother dead, or where's your brother? What's your brother doing? Um, he's a, he's a musician, Petaluma. Please. I just remembered um, 
The year I had the most difficult job yeah. I've ever had in my entire adult life, I went on retreat and then I got a tape like you have of your of this yeah. retreat. And I played that tape every single day when I went to work in the morning and actually that was the only way I could get to work <laughs> yeah. on certain mornings. And I made it, you know, I had a positive Positive, relatively positive outcome to that very mm-hmm. bad job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that tape helped. That's great. What's helped other people? Anyone want to mention anything? Something very similar. Yeah. yeah. To working with the uh, tapes. Yeah. Yeah. Feel the ambience, you know. It can remind you of. Uh, you can almost feel. You can almost see the scene. You know. You can remember. You know, if it's something you lived through, you can kind of remember the jokes or whatever, or, or the uh, the feeling. You remember where you were. It almost brings back a visceral memory. Please. Having a Dharma buddy. Yeah. Yeah, again, I invite you to um, talk with someone here if you feel you want to connect and support each other. Having, you know, there, there's a program, uh, Connect with Spirit Rock, called Dedication, Dedicated Practitioners Program, which is a program for people who are kind of at an intermediate or advanced level. And it, it's about a two and a half year program where people do uh, retreats together. About 100 people come from all over the country, probably. Canada also. And I've heard it's a really great program. And one of the things they do, they do have buddies. And I've heard that some of the buddies, I think, I think you contract to meet, to talk with your buddy once a month or something, minimal. Some of the buddies actually communicate every day via email or telephone. Because they're, you know, it's someone w- with kind of comparable interest level. And you can talk on the phone, you can just uh, support each other. And it makes a huge difference. And I was amazed to hear that, oh, God, my God, they're talking every day. It's like having your own little community uh, that you go home to. Or like my friend, or my friend and mentor, Sylvia, she has emails waiting from the East Coast about how did you practice gratitude today? So maybe time for one or two more suggestions or questions or comments. Please. Have you heard um, a meta tape? Yeah. I've got that one. It's there, great. I'll listen to it on the way home. Yeah, there's, um, there's a tape uh, of the meta chant, which, which we, did, we haven't done. We do it on the meta retreat. We chant, do a, a, a meta chant. And it was recorded by a Malaysian nun, I believe. I forget her name. But there's a, a CD, which is in the bookstore. Yeah, it's a CD. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful one, and it, it goes on for, what, like almost an hour, I think? Mm-hmm. It goes on for almost an hour. Yeah. yeah. We, some of us in the song have fond memories of that particular tape because it was played when the Dalai Lama was visiting. Oh, yeah. And so we went as a group over there um, to see the Dalai Lama, and yeah. we signed for about three or four days, and consecutive, every single break, that particular, they, they just played that one. That was yeah. Yeah. And there were thousands of people. Yeah. 
And I would sincerely love to hear from people about what works, you know. If you, if you haven't signed up on the email list, do that, and you'll, you'll get my email address, and just let me know what's happening. Let me know what works, because I, I think I'm really going to do this book on daily life practice, and so there are now 60. If you all do your homework, pretty soon there'll be 150. So I think that's cool. It's really uh, making this work. So, so anything else, please? Uh, yeah. In response to what yeah. David first said about, about trying to convey the experience to, yeah. to people who might oh, yeah. respond to it, I'm going to look for creative little, very, very subtle ways to, to, to convey some of what yeah. I brought away that, where the person doesn't really know that, <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm directly yeah. teaching, maybe. Yeah. But um. I, I think that's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and ju- yeah, just um, yeah, it's it's wonderful to be creative, but um, mostly gauge the level of receptivity of the person. Some people, most people, are really not that interested. Some people are interested and they don't know the vocabulary. And some, and you're blessed if there are people who are interested and know the vocabulary, uh, but. You know, if I had to say one thing, it would be to uh, mostly kind of stay within yourself and don't, don't try too hard to be understood by others. And be, try to really see what, you know, know, try to know your own level of urgency about communicating. And if you really feel it's really, really urgent, you might step back a little bit. And, yeah. And if I had to summarize everything that I've said, especially about the next few days, it would be go slow, um, keep practicing, know that you're really sensitive, be really kind to yourself, Um, I'd also uh, make a suggestion if you, see if if this resonates, it may for some, but I'll tell you something I've always done at retreats that I found really helpful, which was sometime uh, before the end of the retreat, like probably sometime for us, it might be sometime before 9.30 in the morning tomorrow when we all will gather together again. I, will, I would love to just um, kind of have a little time to myself and just do a little writing. And that's perfectly fine to do, you know, if you want to do that sometime I would suggest doing it tomorrow, maybe, rather than today, but see what, see what you're drawn to. Find some time to do some writing about what your main intentions are coming out of the retreat and how you might implement them. Or whatever you want to write about, about what your experiences were, what your insights were. I have done that almost every retreat near the end, so I don't, you know, I don't do it during the retreat, so it's, it's more like I just have faith. I'll wait almost to the end, and then I'll try to give myself some writing that can provide future guidance because on the assumption that I'm coming from a little bit clearer space there than I will be in a week or something. And, and really express my intentions, my intuitions, my learning and have it in the form of writing. And again, that may work for some of you and not for others, but if it resonates with you, I would suggest you do that uh, at some point. And... Um, and work mostly just be really caring to, to yourselves. Caring and kind and 
and spacious. And really be careful with those emails. If you get if you get one from me, it'll be a little different. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and if you want to take on that practice of metta with your emails, uh, um, let me know about it. Or something like that. You know, maybe you stay in silence for the morning or something, or you you just take it easy, take take a long walk every day, or find something that works for you. But some some way of um, creating space and keeping the momentum going is a, is a big gift to yourself, to your to uh, to ourselves. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.